This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, we the people find this incredibly contrived. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique and review show that puts the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gepwin, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! Oh, great googly moogly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I will say, before we get into anything, that this was less bad than I was fearing, but, uh, yeah... So the episode, it starts fine, then it turns into a completely different episode that's kind of mm-hmm. what for a while, and then yep. the ending, the last act, just pulls all this stuff straight out of left field, where you're like, wait, what now? <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone from a, oh, this is a pretty straightforward kind of mystery episode to, oh no, we're once again captured and being held hostage and things are going wrong to what <laughs> it follows a three-act structure because every act could be its own freaking show yes <laughs> and the last one is just what where did this cut co- why ah, there's some underlying things that are set up earlier but yeah it's like what this makes no sense anyway but also, I just lo- we'll get to it. That I just love how every character just has this sudden realization that makes absolutely no sense based on two random names that also don't make any sense. Yep. <laughs> and they're just like, "Oh my god, it's so obvious!" Like, wait, what? How? We've solved the the case. It was it was a old man uh, uh, Jones from the the haunted music park who did nine eleven. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's Scooby Doo went dark. Uh, i'll just get into it (laughs) (laughs) this episode is called the omega glory and it was written by gene roddenberry which is usually just disastrous so um whoops like i i get he like looking back at this thing he had some interesting ideas and he had some progressive stuff but wow he could not write yeah (laughs) sorry gene uh we we, we kind of love you, I guess, but yeah. So um, just stuck with producing. Stick to producing. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got a couple of guest stars in this episode. Uh, Morgan Woodward as Captain Ronald Tracy, who mm-hmm. is well known for his role in a soap opera called Dallas. And yes. he also so, appears in Cool Hand Luke and Gunsmoke. And, uh, he was in the X-Files once. Roy Jensen as Cloud William... Who uh, was in a bunch of stuff? Uh, was he? Uh, I think he was in Fantasy Island. Uh, yeah, also uh, Daniel Boone, which we've heard mm-hmm. of before. Mm-hmm. He also uh, has the fame of being the first person to be beat up by Kane on the TV show Kung Fu. Oh, I guess so- someone had to be the first. <laughs> also, Irene Kelly as Saria, who is never named and has one and a half speaking lines, but I thought I'd mention her because she should get some recognition for showing up and hanging out near Shatner in that leather bikini. And um, being occasionally threatened by him in a couple plots there, spots there, too. Yeah, she's the girl. Because there's always a female guest star to hang out in a leather bikini in this show. Yes. All right, we should jump in. There's going to be a lot to unpack at the end of this. Yes. <laughs> 
The Enterprise is on route for Omega-4, some random planet. They have no particular stated reason for being here. Yeah, they're just going places. They detect a Federation ship in low orbit. It is the USS Exeter, captained by Ronald Tracy. After they receive no response from the ship, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and random guard dude beam over to find the ship deserted with nothing left of the crew but uniforms and piles of a white dust. Wait, wait, wait. Gepwin, where is everybody, Gepwin? They're dead, Izix. Who is? Everybody is, Izix. What, Captain Pike's yeoman? Everybody's dead, Izzy. What, Gary Mitchell? Everybody's dead. What, Carlisle? They're all dead. Everyone is dead, Izix. Arlen Galloway isn't, is, is she? Everybody's dead, Izix. Not Lang, really? Yes, everybody's dead. Everyone's just dead, Izix. Wait, are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? I, I should have never let you on this show. They make their way to the bridge. McCoy makes the determination that these little piles of powder are, in fact, the remains of the crew with all of the water in their bodies removed. So it's good to know that if you are completely dehydrated, you're turned into crystal meth. Yeah, I, I'm still pretty sure that you would just be oily goop because you'd yeah, still yeah. have lipids. Yeah, not, not all of the fluids inside your body are necessarily uh, water. Yeah, I guess it's a cool effect to have just the little piles of powder, but I'm pretty sure it would be just goopy. They find the final log entry from the chief medical officer. He warns that anyone seeing this message is now infected by a horrible thing that will make them die unless they beam down to the planet immediately. He also tries to say something about Captain Tracy, but is cut off before he can finish by dying. So I, so you didn't you had enough time to put in a log message, but not enough time to put on a distress beacon saying, "Go away! This is dangerous. There's an infection." Yeah. Got also, it. like he knows you have to beam back down to the planet, and instead of doing that, he's wasting ten minutes recording a log message and then dying. As you do. <laughs> the crew beam down where they find a village full of slightly Asian-looking people dressed in Mongolian-style outfits. Yeah, the the architecture here is kind of like. American Southwest meets Spain meets, I don't know, uh, old timey Persian maybe. It's the it's the village from Private Little War. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just reuse, you know. <laughs> the people in the village are in the process of executing a large white guy who's growling and yelling and wearing furs, and also have a woman that they're holding captive nearby who may be the next one to be killed. The mm crew interrupt this and before much else can happen captain tracy appears ordering that the villagers stop trying to kill everyone while he talks to the new visitors wait wait so this guy didn't open the door for Ulf stormcloak to let him out of the city okay tracy explains that he found this planet reading as harmless and tried to make contact with the native villagers called cons Calms. yeah Calms. Calms. hmm a name sounds familiar. Hmm. They are quite friendly once they get over the fact that he, as a random white dude, looked like the Yangs, the savage people who they were trying to execute earlier and who were apparently barely human and will attack anyone they see on sight. They're all growly and mean and they just want to murder you for, for, for realsies. They investigated this planet, and when they went back, they found out that the whole crew dies of an infection, but as long as you stay on the planet, something in the environment keeps you alive. But now, no one else can leave unless McCoy can figure out what that thing is. Well, that's mildly inconvenient. McCoy says that that could probably take, you know, years. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess we're going to be doing our retirement here then, guys. Um, 
The crew are taken to a random storeroom to work while Spock and their security guard go out scouting, not before Spock comments on how weird it is that Tracy seems to be violating the Prime Directive, the actual Prime Directive mentioned by name this time. So we're not supposed to interfere with cultures just uh, haphazardly and things like that. In fact, we probably shouldn't even be here. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely shouldn't know why th that they all have phasers, which you know, they all know for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> There's something weird going on here. McCoy confirms that they are in fact infected with something, and there are what he calls immunizing agents in the environment that are keeping them safe, but he has no clue what those are or how to isolate them. Hmm. A little while later, Spock and the guard return, having been attacked by Yangs. Oh no, just uh, violence? We're being invaded? Uh, the city is under siege? No, it's just ran one random dude got stabbed a little. Oh, okay. But while they were out, they found evidence that Tracy has been out haphazardly killing Yangs with his phaser. Wait a moment. Is he doing a colonialism? Yeah, this apparently is a big Federation no-no. All right, this time we're you know we have the guest stars in the wrong here because he's the guest star. <laughs> Tracy comes in looking all crazy, just to confirm that yeah he's definitely the bad guy, and to rub it in even more, he vaporizes their security officer. Um, I I guess we're ha glad we brought a security officer that was never really named. Yeah, I think he was sort of named once, but you know, Tracy ties them up mostly so he can monologue to Kirk about his motivations. He found that the people on this planet have no disease and live for thousands of years, and he thinks that it's because of whatever this inhumizing environmental thing that McCoy is looking for is, and if they found it, they could, you know, cure all human disease and make people live for thousands of years, which he thinks is worth killing a few hundred people. I don't know. I'm having uh, some flashbacks to an episode of Babylon 5. Uh, I think it was something about Deathwalker, but, you know... Kirk thinks this is super crazy, so Tracy yes. decides to throw him into the cell that he's holding the two Yangs from earlier. This takes way too long, and we have to cut away from Kirk fighting several times to, like, show McCoy being weird and creepy to a woman and then not escaping. It's like, oh, no, I'm gonna be, I'm reaching for this, this tool, and, oh, the guy that I thought was asleep, he has his sword, and I'm just actually reaching for this glass of water instead, yes. <clears throat> There's like a super dumb, drawn-out half-fight between Kirk and the two Yangs, and Spock is watching from the other cell, and he looks way too amused and pleased with this situation. Kirk finally circles around and gets the woman to stand close enough to Spock for him to knock her out with a neck pinch, and then the guy runs over and is like, oh no, she's knocked unconscious, and Kirk goes, yay, now we can get free. And then suddenly the... Yang man goes, freedom, that's one of our holy words. How do you know our holy words? And Kirk goes, oh, that's our holy word. And then they break the bars out of the window, but then the Yang dude knocks out Kirk. I, I thought we were getting along for a second over freedoms. That was like 20 minutes of this episode. Yes. <laughs> Kirk comes to, according to Spock, about seven hours later. It's a long period of unconscious. Yeah, so Kirk... Well, it, it kind of suggests that he needed, like, a, a, a good night's sleep uh, before that, but still, it's sort of like, if that's just from him being knocked out, he should probably go see a doctor. Hey, where's McCoy? Also, here's a fun, fun tidbit that they never seem to adhere to in TV or movies. Being knocked unconscious like that blanks out your memory for about 15 minutes before you get knocked out, hmm. so you would have no clue why you were in this cell or what happened. 
Well, well, you just said the the fight took like 20 minutes, so he at least know how he's got in the cell. <laughs> yeah, so he'd remember getting into the cell, and then he'd be unconscious. <laughs> he goes out of this window hole that they made earlier, unlocks Spock's cell with random keys that were just there. Yeah, very, very, very convenient, very um contrived, as it were. <clears throat> and they go to save McCoy! Spock tries to use some of the equipment to get in contact with the ship, and McCoy explains that he did find that this planet probably had some sort of massive biological war in its distant past. And the environment adapted to the, you know, biological disease things to create immunization, which is how environments work, apparently. Sure. Yeah, it's not just going to, you know... You, you know everything that it, you know, can be affected from it you know just die off because that's how you design your bioweapon and you know, the th- things that are you know happen to survive just have a natural immunity of some sort and it just happens to be those that uh, you know continue on it's that they are doing that plus making everything else immune somehow yeah the trees just make immunization <laughs> pollen i guess yes <laughs> So this immunization thing takes a while to kick in, but after that, you're cured. So if the other crew had just stayed on the planet a little bit longer, they would have been fine. And, you know, that means that you can leave whenever you want. Yeah. Well, hopefully they're not carriers, though. Yeah, otherwise, like, everyone in the <laughs> ship is dead. <laughs> yes. It's like, all right, we're back here. Oh, wait, everybody else is dead now. Huh. Also, the more important thing to note about this immunity thing is that it's just immunity. No one is living a long time because of the immunity. They're living a long time because their ancestors had to survive this super harsh environment. And it's just natural for the species on this planet to live for thousands of years. Because even though they look exactly human, it's a different freaking planet and they're a different species. Yep. <laughs> Not everyone has an average lifespan of about 75 some years. Uh, you know, these are aliens. They can have alien sort of things going on. So, Tracy, you're kind of... Kind of completely wrong about everything. <laughs> uh, McCoy says that if you, you know, started a similar biological war on Earth and waited a few thousand years, you might get similar effects in humans, but he doesn't think that'd be worth it. I, I don't want to die of biological war. Tracy comes in and blows up the communicator that Spock's been working with. He's very angry because when the Yangs escaped, they let everybody know about where the village is and their defenses, and now the Yangs have come and basically killed everyone. Well, once again, we have a massive, like, interesting fight between opposing forces done completely off screen. The fight we do get is Kirk, for some reason, playing along with Tracy for a long time while he tries to make him request phasers from the ship, then ineffectively knocking the gun out of his hands, being saved only by the fact that Tracy runs out of ammunition at the last second. And then when Kirk finally gets the upper hand, he finds himself surrounded by spear-wielding yangs. Well, that fight was kind of pointless. Moving on. (laughs) Action! (laughs) The Yang that Kirk was imprisoned with is a man named Cloud Williams, and he is, in fact, the chief and son of chiefs of this tribe of Yangs. Mm -hmm. He assembles a group of Yangs and the crew with Captain Tracy all tied up to celebrate them taking over the village, and you can hear that there's sounds of wild partying going on outside. Yes, um, and it seems to be sampled from certain um, westerns from, uh, you know, that sort of era. Yeah. Moving on. (laughs) Now, apparently in this village was actually taken from the Yangs generations ago. So this is them retaking their territory. Yeah, uh, uh, reconquest. They're uh, establishing themselves on their, their, their territorial cores again. This gets Kirk to thinking. 
And, you know, if his white dude ancestors from the United States had gotten cast out into the wilderness for generations, maybe they'd start acting like American Indians specifically referenced and quoted from the show. Ah, I got nothing on this. Also, they're called Yangs, which sounds kind of like Yankees. So these are obviously the descendants of baseball fans. Yes, as I say, you know, it's like, are they New Yorkers? Spock also goes, comms, communists. <gasps> oh no, the communists took over on this planet and are, and after the fall of civilization, yep, I guess. This planet was another exact parallel Earth thing, except on this planet, they had the war that your planet avoided. Um, well, at least it doesn't have the exact same continents as uh, Earth, like in Miri. Yeah, at least they're diverging a little bit. It's maybe just sort of a coincidence that there's a uh, slight similarity in the uh, the naming conventions here. Surely there isn't something completely out of nonsense land that is exactly the same for some, for no good reason. Just then right? they walk in with a U.S. flag. What? What? Seriously? What the hell? Cloud says he's now going to speak the holy words and starts a badly, badly distorted version of the Pledge of Allegiance that Kirk recognizes and finishes. This surprises everyone because he shouldn't know their holy things. This, this, this begs many, many, many questions. Yeah. But I, I, th I think the one that I think is the, might actually lead to interesting more discussion is why is he speaking... In effectively Star Trek English, which Universal translators, whatever, you never know. Um, but yet, it's it's clear that he's speaking the the, the pledge there uh, inaccurately. And why is that the case and not tr being translated? But he can speak normally other times. I don't know. <laughs> well, he's obviously speaking distorted English that he reads. They show you English written down on pieces of paper. This is just an exact frickin' parallel Earth thing. Yes. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's more. <laughs> Tracy, for some reason, decides to be a complete a-hole and tries to convince the Yangs that Kirk is an agent of the devil. Uh, you know, as you do. He points out Spock's ears again. The, the ears... He must be a, a, a demon of some sort, a servant of the Dark One. Cloud opens another unnamed book that's almost definitely supposed to be a Bible or something. He <laughs> opens it to a drawing of Spock. Wait a moment, Vulcans have been here before? Uh, it's not a drawing that, like, a dude with pointed ears. It is a drawing of Spock. Yes. Uh, just kind of hanging out, you know, in the fire and the flames, you know, that kind of thing. They decide that to prove that they're not servants of the evil one, Kirk needs to say more holy words, because if an evil one says holy words, it's going to burn his mouth. I guess that kind of makes sense in your, your religion, I guess? Cloud yeah. starts another very distorted speech, but this time Kirk doesn't immediately recognize it. So instead of saying the holy words, he suggests that Tracy and him fight to the death. Yeah, because good always triumphs over evil, so let's do that. They're tied together, and a knife is placed in the middle of the room. Uh, they have to fight for it. Wait, the, the, the wrists are bound. This reminds me of a music video. In the meantime, Spock mind-controls the Yang woman 
to grab and open one of their communicators because this mind control thing is definitely going to convince them you're not an evil demon. Yes. <laughs> Don't worry. It, it's not It's not relevant other than getting the communicator open. <laughs> Kirk gets the upper hand but refuses to kill Tracy and before this becomes a problem, Sulu and some guards beam down because they detected the communicator signal. Take wait a moment. Our uh, people have been down there and they told us to go away because there's a deadly disease. Let's just beam down into it. Because the communicator's open. Cloud asks why Kirk didn't read the holy words if they are able to do all this stuff. And he goes, well, it's because you said the holy words so badly I didn't know what they were. And then he grabs the document that he was reading from and starts reading the Constitution of the United States. What the hell, people? (laughs) This makes no sense. Why is this alien (sighs) play? And then he says that these words are amazing and magical and have never been written so well before, even though this planet came up with an exact duplicate of them, apparently. Well, if they've lived for thousands of years, maybe they did it first. That's true. They must have. (laughs) And then he goes, this isn't a holy document. It is not for only chiefs. It is for everyone, including the cons, because it has to apply to everyone or no one. And Cloud goes, huh? And Kirk goes, yeah, it's fine. We'll leave now. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk, I, I give you points for trying to uh, you know, you know, establish the universality of rights for everybody. But yeah, you, this, this guy is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Do you understand? No. Okay, then. Well, I guess our work here is done. Let's leave. <laughs> he leaves secure in the knowledge that the Constitution, now revealed as the Constitution, will magically fix the planet. Everything is now set right. Um, also, Sulu and security team, you have to stay here for a few more hours. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a party. So, so that was an episode. Everything was fine and dandy and stupid until it got even more stupid. Yes. It's like, okay, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, going uh, down this path. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's steep and we're kind of having trouble. And then we, you know, we, we see the path going you know, on a, around a turn uh, you know, on the side of the cliff here. And instead of taking the path down, we'd leap into the void. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about apotheosis. Apotheosis. Let's go. Let's apotheosis go. is a Greek word meaning to make divine. To, to lift something up and, and to empower it with, with holy power. And in the U.S., we started doing this uh, soon after the Civil War with mm-hmm. the little thing we like to call Manifest Destiny. It's like, oh, it's now our destiny to move west and and uh, settle all these places that first for realsies don't have people living there already. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, the basic idea behind Manifest Destiny is after the Civil War, the right and righteous side won and overcame evil slavery. So, you know, fine so far. Uh, but that means that God has ordained that it is, is the Americans' right, well, the United States' right. We didn't start calling it America until, like, the uh, the 1930s. Anyway, it's the Evolution of words. right of the United States to take over the entire continent because God wants you to. Yeah, uh, the... the uh... It's sort of the uh, an evolution of might makes right sort of thinking where, well, we are right, so we might as well. And you can see this everywhere because we've taken on a lot of religious iconography in the United States Capitol, including a uh, mural in the Capitol building rotunda called the Apotheosis of George Washington. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, I'm actually looking at a, a picture of her right now, and there's like sort of angelic beings and flowing robes, and they're sitting on clouds, and there's a couple of them holding e pluribus or unum on a big banner, and there's various scenes of things around uh, that. And in the middle is is sitting George Washington, and he has like a, you know he's pointing out a, like some, some some documents there and holding a knife, you know, as you do, very very holy looking. Yeah, because we took a bunch of uh, fun fun Romany stuff and smished it together into deifying a lot of early American figures. I came across this very interesting article in the uh, Oxford Research Encyclopedias by someone named Diane Kirby called uh, The Cold War and American Religion. It's free and you can look it up. I might have to look at this. I did. I, I was unaware of it until before Gepo mentioned it before the episode. Uh, basically, she links this Manifest Destiny idea that started right after the Civil War uh, takes itself up through basically the United States spreading all the way across the continent from one coast to the other, at which point America was incredibly isolationist. This mm-hmm. lasted up until World War II when isolationism started getting us into trouble and we entered the war proper as allies of the Soviet Union, who were incredibly good wartime allies, and everyone thought we would maintain a good, healthy, relationship after the war (laughs) how about that (laughs) we were full on on course to continue doing that but president truman seeing that capitalism was very very unpopular in europe at the time because of all the fascism decided that this would be a problem for american capitalist interests and we need to uh, make sure that there's room for our markets over there, our, our products. And this kind of culminated in a 1948 election in Italy, which was kind of a contest between a communist party leader and a Christian Democrat. Hmm. So this was kind of the first proxy war election in the Cold War. Yeah, you know, people th- you know, usually think about uh, you know, you know, pr- uh, proxy conflicts, things like that in the Cold War. You know, uh, you know, like Middle East or you know, East Asia or occasionally Eastern Europe. Now, this is Italy, like, you know, Central Europe. Yeah, and Italy had just ousted its fascist dictator that it had during mm-hmm. World War II. So they needed a new government. And you had the two superpowers that had helped them free themselves from fascism, like allied with the Nazis during World War II. So it makes sense that you'd be choosing between the American system and the Soviet system because they were the two big players in the war. And uh, which one, you know, you know, was victorious could uh, you know lead that the, the nation to be more aligned with one versus the other. And Italy is, you know, you know, uh, is and was, uh, you know, back then still a major, uh, you know, uh, power as far as you know continental politics goes. Even though it was on the losing side in World War II, but. Because the U.S. and the USSR were such close allies during the war, Truman knew it would be incredibly politically devastating to just suddenly turn on your wartime allies because you wanted to further your own capitalist interest. It's like, well, you were, you know, you, you were, you were great friends during that whole World War II, but what have you done for me lately? Really? We're not friends anymore, America? So, what Truman does is play on the Soviet anti-religious ideas, which were there because Marx and Stalin both had serious critiques of religion and thought of it as a way to kind of manipulate people. Mm -hmm. But Stalin was not staunchly anti-religion. He, in fact, used a lot of religious 
crossover that he had with other countries and other leaders to foster relationships during the war. And it's one of the reasons that the U.S. and the USSR were close allies. Yeah, like, oh, hey, you, you guys are are not as godly, uh, godless communists as we thought. Oh, I guess we can work out, work together. So Truman decides that what he's going to do is publicly ally himself with the Pope and the Vatican, which were still very, very powerful at the time. Mm-hmm. And this starts to create a minor rift with the Communist Party because the Vatican was not a huge fan of the USSR. And then he starts plastering all these ideals all over the U.S. about godless communism and America's God-given mission to take over the world. Yep. <laughs> the manifest destiny turned up to 11. Yep. So he convinces people to continue our rejection of isolationism into a global engagement because it's God's will that America should spread Christian democracy all over the world, which is something that like like half of this stuff is exactly what modern conservatives keep saying. It was our justification for going into wars in the Middle East. Basically, everything that's going on now reads directly from stuff Truman put into place in order to distance ourselves from the USSR and further American interests without having to publicly betray a wartime ally. It's like, yeah, it's, it's instead of being obvious about, you know, the opposition here, we're just going to turn everyone that you want to get on your side against you in a very, a, a very sort of uh, a manipulative sort of way. So I guess in some ways... Uh, you know, you know, Marx was was right about religion being used to manipulate people. Yeah, I mean, it flat <laughs> out was because they like the like Truman and his political allies started to foster what were at the time kind of niche sects of Christianity. It's some stuff that we would now think of as like evangelical and more right-wing Christian groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it actually led to a massive decline of what they thought of as traditional churches of the time period to raise up these more radical sects of Christianity that would basically link Christian ideals with the American state ideals and create what we have now, which is this odd deification of American ideals themselves. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you can kind of see this with what I thought was interesting in this piece, the Pledge of Allegiance, since they used that as some of the holy words that they had in the show. Because the Pledge of Allegiance was actually written by a uh, minister named Francis Bellamy, in 1892 and it did not include the words america or united states anywhere in it at the time because it was conceived of as a pledge that anyone could use anywhere in the world it just said i pledge allegiance to my flag so you just insert the flag of you know the name of your country and you, know, you can you, know, you, you modify it very lightly and there you have the same pledge the daughters of the american revolution campaigned to have it changed to the United States of America in 1923. Uh, it was adopted as part of the U.S. Flag Code, which is a set of uh, guidelines that we're supposed to use to say how to play proper respect to the flag, which is a fascinating read because it includes things like the flag shall not be used for advertising or put on clothing. Um, I might have a shirt with the flag on it. Anyway. <laughs> oh, no. you idolater. <sighs> that was a gift from somebody. It's kind of hard to... Make that not be a thing. And in <laughs> 1943, just in time 
for our God-given campaign against godless communism, the words under God were added into the thing in order to fight, you know, communism in 1954. Yeah, so... Uh... Suddenly, late to the game, uh, you know, uh, God comes into things, and uh, suddenly we're we're amping up that uh, advertisement, uh, and uh, oh, things don't start there, stop there, do they? No, I mean, this is basically when you hit the Pledge of Allegiance as we know it now. Uh, later, you know, you have weird challenges and things, and it's actually going out of favor recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting, like, not particularly apropos of anything, but something that I found interesting was the original idea with the pledge is you were supposed to salute the flag then extend your arm towards the flag later on changed to starting with your hand over your heart and later extending your arm palm down toward the flag this was changed shortly after world war ii for very obvious reasons yep (laughs) because it looks a little bit like yeah um mm. basically this episode is an interestingly mixed opinion of itself because while roddenberry who is famously anti-organized religion, is sort of a um, secular humanist. Mm-hmm. He is critiquing our religious fervor of American documents and values, which is a fine thing to critique. Yeah, the, the, the idolatry of it. But he's also critiquing communism at the same time, which is the exact thing that the deification and ideology of the American documentation was made to combat. Well, I, I did find it kind of amusing in this episode that uh, Tracy, who has kind of become the de facto leader of the comms, uh, is motivated by a very capitalistic sort of mindset as far as what he wants to get out of the situation. Um, so I guess that's the people in, in charge of communism are trying to get personally uh you know uh, you know profit from it i guess i guess i mean was it very capitalist because he didn't say i'm going to go sell this medicine he's saying all of humanity can live forever well, i got a sort of a vibe that he was wanting to make a you know uh, uh, gain some personal influence by it because like yeah the, the federation will return with you know as many ships as we like or something like that and we'll be in charge of all of them or something like yeah. that but it was it's very muddled but anyway it's also a weird one to just they they de facto go whoa now we found out that these other people were communists so screw them yeah <laughs> so they're the bad guys now by default and uh, <laughs> i guess they were the bad guys for allying themselves with tracy but we don't know anything other than they beam down to what seems to be a fully functioning post-apocalyptic society we don't know how they operate. Apparently, they've been living under communism for thousands and thousands of years, and everyone seems fine, if uh, oddly Mongolian, which I, I forgot to look this up, but I'm pretty sure Mongolia was never part of the USSR. There was some tr- uh, trickiness involving Mongolia, if I recall, but I have to look it up myself. They were so. obviously using Vietnam references because they said specifically yeah. that communism was linked to the Asiatic nations. <sighs> I just have to sigh. That's all I got here. Why? What do they have against Mongolia? Because every time they I show Asian people in this show as bad guys, they're Mongolian. Well, I, th- I think we've uh, I've talked about it before, where the you know there is sort of this old time fear from like the Mongols' invasions of Eastern Europe way back in the day that sort of medically evolved and and transmuted through various sort of. You know, fearful of people from the East sort of uh, ideas, but just to have it sort of so blatantly and obvious still, even in the 60s then, it's just kind of like, what? Yeah, I mean, it's true. Like, all of the propaganda for anti-Japanese anti 
sentiment during World War II was equating them with Mongolians. Doesn't make sense for a geography or cultural or whatever point there, but you know. I also don't get it from America. Like, isn't the entire, like, demonization of Mongolia like some old Chinese propaganda? Well, it's that too. <laughs> it's basically anyone who didn't like, uh, uh, you know, being invaded by the Mongols, I guess. <laughs> Which they invaded a lot of people, let's be honest. That is true. I wonder, I wonder if, like, a few centuries down the line, people will view the British like that. Doubtful. I mean, unless we suddenly overturn <laughs> white supremacy. We can only hope. But, um, yeah, the, the, you know, I was, you know, uh, I'm glad you, you spearheaded a lot of this uh, stuff. I think you did a better job about it than I did. But uh, uh, one thing I, I did want to sort of uh, draw a circle around was the specific uh, uh, use of uh, documents and books and things like that uh, in in the in the episode as, as you know special holy objects uh, that are empowered by uh, I, I guess the divine in this case uh, and that uh, that reminded me a bit of uh, you know the the concept of a fetish and I don't mean of the sexy kind I mean like the the, the uh, older definition where there was an object that had uh, that was generally created by a person but was instilled with some sort of holy power that could be used to influence people. And to a certain degree, that is kind of what uh, things like uh, a constitution is in a society like ours, where there is this sort of uh, you know, deification of the, the, you know, the, the, the concept of America and you know, the various historical figures associated with it. That it is something that was crafted, and because of why, how, and who crafted it, it has special, uh, uh, seemingly mystical powers that have kind of instilled a, a certain level of mystery about it that people, you know, sort of, you know, react uh, more emotionally than anything uh, in response to when it's sort of brought up. Yeah, it's an interesting one to think about if you kind of look at any governmental system or group of people because while we definitely have a lot of institutions and layers and layers and layers of organization in place to keep everything functioning the way it does something like a government and even a government with a controlled military um only exists because enough people agree it does there's a legitimacy that has been established for that government and by the people that are participating in it believing that government sh uh, should and does exist and that it uh, should be instilled with the powers that it does, and then you know that they are, and so they are at least reasonably willing to go along with what what the government's all about. This is a um, concept that you usually find in economics called fiat, which basically means uh, from nothing. Mm -hmm. You hear it a lot as fiat currency, meaning a currency backed by nothingness. But it's basically everything. Like even you know years ago when we supposedly had a gold based system. Uh, we still would back it with gold, which people only agreed was worth something because everyone went, yeah, gold's worth something. So gold itself is fiat currency. Basically. I mean, I'm not like people get into this argument a lot. Gold is not a completely worthless metal. It is very easily pliable and it's super conductive. But, you know, it's only worth a ton of value because people go, yeah, it's worth a ton. And the uh, the, the value is, uh, instilled upon it uh, goes well beyond the material uses of it. I mean, if you look at something like that's why the Spanish were all over South America. But if you look at some like of the some of the older native South American cultures, they had gold everywhere because they just used it for jewelry and they didn't have a particularly massive value placed on it. It was just an article of clothing. 
Yeah, you know, this is kind of pretty. I'll slap it on my, my stuff here, and uh, I'll go out in style today. And so, you know, it's it's it, it was it, its value was not the same in those cultures as it was in the Europeans at the times. So, yes, in fact, a lot of those cultures, the uh, like tiny bird feathers were possibly worth more than gold. It's hard to know because a lot of this stuff comes like fourth hand from invading colonizers. But yeah, so you know, the stories. Uh, uh, you know, translated by so and so in a monastery in the the 1600s from an original text by some guy that was uh, working with the uh, the, the Spanish uh, you know, conquistadors who heard a thing from a uh, his granddad who might not be you know totally up on the current events back then and so on and so forth. Yes, you have a good point that we have developed a certain number of fetish objects, and when you start to link those with existing religions, it's very easy to kind of make that not very far leap between you believe that this constitution means something and we should follow it to you believe in a lot of religious things. And so, you know, there is, you know, you know very much as you talked about before, this sort of uh, uh, religion of America that is separate but very interlinked with the general uh, Christianity that's uh, you know practiced a lot of quarters here, uh, and so you get a, a you know, you know, ideals and uh, orthodoxy and uh, theology that sort of is being built up over the years about what America is that is you know, maybe not really really connected anymore to what's you know what what what's there in the very technical physical sense or the even the legal sense or anything like that it, it, there's a, there's a sort of a growing disconnect i'd argue uh between the idea of america and what's actually america is all about but there is also people that are kind of like you know this is getting a little ridiculous so maybe we can like go and actually study more about what is actually there and sort of remove the mystery a bit more and uh you know and actually have the civics classes where we, uh, you know, you know, figure out, you know, both the original meanings of things and how it's been sort of interpreted over the years, and come to a better sort of uh, more harmonious society through this knowledge and figuring out, okay, maybe these are the things that aren't so working, and now because there's not this mystery that says everything is always going to be like this forever, we can actually change things to make them better. Well, you put on an interesting point where if you're dealing with something slightly more religious or fetishistic the things that you do don't matter as much you can call them out as hypocrisy and that works mm -hmm. like if enough hypocrisy happens people become disillusioned with the ideas but the ideas matter so much more than the actions that you have to have a lot of hypocrisy before people start to either give up on the linked ideas or move off and go no we're actually going to use the ideas instead of whatever it is you're doing and so I, I, you know, there's a choice that has you know can sort of be made at that point, but and then you yeah, get into a lot of philosophical moral arguments. Like if you have these, let's say the American freedom ideals. Well, one, mm -hmm. no one can agree what that means because freedom is an incredibly ambiguous term that can mean all kinds of things. But then it, it means freedom, Gapwin. Just it means freedom. That's it. <laughs> how much are you willing to do to instill freedom? Like, what kind of ends justify the means? If it's a, like, super important value, you could basically argue that you should be able to do anything as long as it's in the service of instilling this thing somewhere. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, freedom you with these bombs now. Um, 
So yeah, there's there's could be a lot to sort of unpack and all of that. Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to do a little bit here, if you give me a few moments here, is uh, maybe to uh, lift some of the mystery from the uh, the U.S. Constitution. Oh, that could be interesting. So, so the Constitution was written by guys, by men specifically, uh, at a constitutional convention in the uh, uh, you know late eight, uh, 1780s, right? I believe so. You know, the I'm forgetting the exact dates. I probably should have written them down here. Um, but uh, the final ratification was in 1789, I believe, when it came into effect. And uh, it's replaced a earlier document called the Articles of Confederation, uh, which didn't work out so well. There, so they decided, ah, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll replace it. Uh, the framing of the Constitution, uh, you know, was involved a, a fair number of compromises. Uh, some of them uh, resulted in things like uh, having a bicameral uh, legislature, with one uh, body being more representative of population distribution, the other one. You know, give, you know, being the Senate, uh, giving two votes, uh, two seats to each uh, state, um, but also things. It also, you know, you know, the framing also included things like the Three Fifths Compromise, which is just kind of awful. Um, but uh, we, we could talk about slavery on another time. Um, uh, and speaking of, it also left out uh, much more than that, other than you know, we can't ban slave trade before this point. Uh, and so there's all, all these sort of things that were sort of hashed out, uh, and they were. And there's a lot of politics involved in in uh, putting it together because we needed to get everybody on board and everyone had their own sort of interests. And, you know, different uh, states had different economies, different states had different populations. So they all wanted to have enough influence over the resulting government to uh, both be able to further in their interests and to not let a different state uh, you know, further their that other state's interest at their own expense. Um, and so you got this, this document, uh, starts with the preamble, which we hear in the episode, uh, and then it uh, kicks off with the various articles. Article one, it's all about the legislative branch, its powers, what it's supposed to be up to about, uh, you know, and, you know, I could go the whole list, but I'm not going to right now. Uh, the article two is all about the president and what you know, the president's about, uh, elections, things like that for the presidency, which have been changed by amendments, but we'll get to that later. Uh, article three is all about the courts. Uh, jurisdictions and things like that. Article four uh, is all about how the states sort of interact. So it's you know you know you know what you know movements you know uh, you know extradition that sort of stuff. Uh, Article five is all about amending the constitution and the various methods about that. Uh, you know which they're sort of sort of different four different ways to do it, but. That's maybe something for another time as well. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here. I don't want to spend up uh, too much time. Uh, there's Article Six, uh, which establishes uh, you know that the it's basically the miscellaneous section of the Constitution where uh, it's like yeah we, the, the, this country can have debt uh, the, you know, the federal law supreme law of the land is in the Constitution uh, there's no religious te uh, tests for office that sort of thing uh, and then finally Article Seven which uh, straight up says, uh, to do the ratification of the convention of the United States shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states, so ratifying the same. And that's the entirety of Article 7. So now the constitution is a little more demystified, I hope. What do you think, Gepwin? Did I do a good enough job? Yeah. <laughs> I also think there's a, like, since we've been talking about religion so much, there is a lot of religious wording in um, not so much the Constitution itself, but a lot of the documents surrounding it, like the um, 
Declaration of Independence and you know God-given rights, etc., etc. There's been a huge and amount of by de- the Creator. There's a huge amount of debate over how religious the like founding fathers were in the United States. Uh, but regardless of how practicing religious they were, the philosophies of the time were still very theistic. And kind of used God or a creator or nature's God, as a lot of the founding fathers kind of thought of it in that period, uh, as sort of an ultimate moral appeal. Yeah, it's like even if, you know, even if we might have uh, fallibility, we can still sort of look to this higher power to sort of justify what we're talking about. Yeah, because they were still working off of uh, they were still working off of earlier kind of theological philosophy. So mm-hmm. while there is a lot of religious wording in the documents, it's not exactly religious. It's philosophical, drawing on the moral justifications of religion. I guess it gets back to the thing I mentioned again, that there is a certain amount of politics necessary in order to even get it uh, you know, uh, ratified. And to you know, leave out the philosophical underpinnings uh, that are deep in the very sort of divine backing uh, would be basically a non-starter for a lot of people that would be needing to get, uh, get you, know, you need to get the approval of. All this stuff was being written in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. You didn't get to less theological philosophy until you hit the like you know uh, 1860s when you have philosophers like Nietzsche and their mm-hmm. God is dead ideas. Uh, yeah, a, a sort of a move to divorce uh, philosophy from notions of the divine. Also, Nietzsche wasn't too crazy about the whole God is dead thing. Uh, I don't have my notes for for, for Nietzsche up here, but uh, you know, the uh, the general gist of what I remember is that it's like, yeah, that's more of a, a product of how people are behaving more than I've now killed gods. <laughs> yeah. The blood is on our hands. What holy games must we invent to atone, Isix? <laughs> oh no um maybe maybe we have uh some sort of questions answers and and the answers this week are not very good at all yeah probably <laughs> maybe maybe some sort of game or like a sh- in show form oh yes is it time for our own holy game <laughs> it might be it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show <laughs> didn't intend that to be that good of a segue <laughs> Well, everybody, that was a fantastic segue, and I'm glad we we managed to get to the the, uh, the game show portion of the show. Where our various contestants have racked up a lot of points, and a lot of them are going to our guest stars this week. Uh, the first one is the Highlander Award, which goes to the Coms and the Yangs for having found themselves with long, uh, super long living uh, lives. Because who knows, Gepwin, what do they win? Oh, it's the Highlander. They have to win. There can only be one. No, there are. Th- Thousands. They reference there being thousands of Yangs. This is not much of a post-apocalypse. Well, they have had apparently thousands of years to recover, so... And none of them ever die. (laughs) Yet none of them ever die unless they're murdered, I guess. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess maybe they'll have to uh, develop one of those uh, murder cult cultures that we've seen in a couple episodes, and and then we'll see how many there are left in a few years. 
Our second award is the Evil Twin Award, which for you know, goes to the very planet itself that we're on today, Omega-3, because we have yet another crapsack version of Earth kicking around the cosmos now, and it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, it's like Earth in way more ways than it should be. When do they win, Gepwin? Let's draw from some other slightly better science fiction and call out the infinite improbability drive. Because it's not impossible, it's just very, very improbable. Indeed. Um, I think the uh, likelihoods are, you know, quadrillion to one sort of situations here. Hmm. I don't think I like those odds, but apparently they work out in Star Trek way often, more often than they should. Our third award is the What Prime Directive Awards goes to Tracy for becoming the de facto leader of the communist forces as also can make a buck, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but what does he win? Tracy wins more of our constitutional stuff because, you know, we have, you get a philosophy of freedom and not interfering with people with the explicit underwritten philosophy of let's go interfere with people. Oh, that Tracy. Always going out and corrupting. I, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> oh, that's how I am with the most of this episode, Gep, but I'm sorry. I, I got one more, though. The final award, uh prize i'm handing out is the everybody's dead dave award which goes to the crew of the exeter for getting themselves turned into crystal meth what do they win get one the crew of the exeter gets a lifetime supply of bottled water which apparently they hadn't invented since they all got turned into random water <laughs> i guess they're uh hoping they would had a something to drink before this and hmm the other thing the other idea is the law of book of the laws of equivalent exchange because the Listing out of human parts is just the beginning of Full Metal Alchemist. Indeed. Wait a moment. Wait a moment. Star Trek Full Metal Alchemist crossover. This planet, this planet they've just landed on. It's the Full Metal Alchemist planet. It must be Gepwin. Are they? Is that why you get so many second Earths? Are they all just homunculi Earths? I think so, yeah. <laughs> this modifies my, my, my fan theory about how Bioshock and Full Metal Alchemist are linked as well now. I mean, did you ever see the Full Metal Alchemist movie? Because that would explain a lot about this planet. Hmm. uh, I don't think I have, actually. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take this away, Gepwin. I think we've lost our our minds at this point. I certainly have. Yes, we have. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. So I need to mention again, this planet, the, the Omega-3 here, as turning out so, so similar to Earth in so many ways, is ridiculously unlikely. And to have now at least two planets that are so, you know, basically double of Earth is like, it's, it's just like slapping me in the face over and over again. This makes no, this makes no sense. Then I Can't count, we, we have at least two more. Oh, man. Hopefully not next episode, Gepwin. What, what do we got next episode? I don't think it's next episode because next episode is the ultimate computer. Wait, we're, we're talking about my computer? It's pretty badass. <laughs> the crew of the Enterprise is in a race to disable a rogue computer that has taken over control of the ship. Uh-oh. Hmm. I'll, uh, hopefully his, his name's not Hal, but... This is the introduction <laughs> of somebody who becomes name famous later on in Star yes. Trek. 
Dr. Richard Daystrom. Yes. Um, in fact, Gepwood, you probably might remember his his uh, his uh, uh, face there from uh, that, that, that GURPS adventure we were going on. Yes. So, Daystrom from the Daystrom Institute, apparently, in later series anyway, comes with a computer that, of course, is bad because it's a computer. Yes. The computer's always the enemy in these plots. Um, to, to quote Johnny Five, imprison the humans, destroy the machines. I should add that to my list. Anyway. <laughs> I need to put that on our short list for Short Circuit's a really good movie. Yes. Anyway, the computers are bad. Basically. <laughs> computers bad. I think we can computers skip this episode. The so the next episode is Bread and Circus. Oh, you got two episodes before we get another. <laughs> I guess we have to do this one because Bread and Circus is another parallel earth. <laughs> oh yeah that's like uh romans right yep. <laughs> oh well you can join us next week for computers bad on watches of tomorrow hey kid i'm a computer stop with all the downloading next time on watchers of tomorrow automation is the wave of the future <laughs> have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>